Hey, this is David Schultz, audio producer here at Bloomberg Tax. Just wanted to let you know we've created a couple new ways for you to interact with us. If you have feedback on this episode or any of our other podcasts, please give us a call and leave us a voicemail at 703-341-3690. That's 703-341-3690. We might just use your comments in a future episode. We would love to hear your thoughts. From Washington, this is Talking Tax. I'm David Schultz. So some pretty big electric vehicle tax breaks that the U.S. was offering are now expired for some automakers. With Democrats in control of the White House and both chambers of Congress, albeit just barely, there's some appetite from lawmakers on Capitol Hill to not just reinstate these credits, but also revamp and reform them. After all, it can be a little hard to justify giving a tax break to someone buying a new Tesla sports car that could cost nearly as much as a small condominium. So the question is, what will these new EV tax breaks look like? And the man at, or at least near the center of that, is Dan Kildee, a Democratic congressman from Michigan who sits on the House Ways and Means Committee. Kildee has two main reasons he wants the EV tax credits reinstated. One, they're a powerful tool to combat climate change. And two, other countries are churning out electric cars faster than ever, and that puts U.S. automakers, many of which are based in Kildee's home state, at a disadvantage. Kildee spoke with Bloomberg Tax's Kostuv Basu about his strategy to get a new tax credit to the president's desk and about why he's trying to help the Motor City avoid getting beat by their foreign competitors again. The current consumer credit has expired for a couple of the most significant producers including General Motors, which is a community with a significant presence in my home state and was was for, uh, formed actually in my hometown of Flint. Um, we have been working uh, with uh, key stakeholders, with Senator Stabenow, uh, with some folks at the White House to put together what we think is a, a better approach to uh, extending this credit to do a couple of things. One, try to focus more of the consumer credit on middle income and lower income earners by placing a cap on the on the MSRP on the retail price of a vehicle that qualifies for the tax credit we think that's the most efficient uh, way to get to that sort of middle market which not only helps the right people but also has the greatest likelihood of getting us to scale uh, in terms of the number of vehicles that would be eligible for the credit, we want to increase. Right now, we only have 2% of vehicles sold that are fully electric. I think we need to get, obviously, more aggressive on this. The other piece of it is to uh, skew the credit. Uh, again, this is where we stand now. We're working on some of the detail. But to skew the credit in favor of domestically manufactured vehicles, and particularly for vehicles that uh, are made by workers who have decent wages, good benefits, essentially those represented uh, by labor unions. We think that hits the right mix. Uh, it's been our goal from the time that we started this to make sure that we deal with issues around affordability when it comes to the use of the credit. But also, while we want to realize the full benefit to the economy and to the environment, by increasing the number of electric vehicles. We also want to make sure that the American economy is the beneficiary and the American worker is the beneficiary 
of this investment. And we think this new framework is a good way to get there. So, Congressman, a Treasury plan that was released last week uh, makes no mention of an EV credit for smaller passenger vehicles. What's your take on that? Is there are is the Biden administration thinking of something like a direct rebate? Well, I think part of this is a semantic uh, distinction because we're working on a way to make the tax credit fully refundable at the point of sale. For the consumer, it'll feel like a rebate. It'll feel like a direct reduction in their sticker price through a rebate program. So to me, it's it's a bit of a distinction without a difference. And also, it just so happens that we've been working pretty closely with uh, the key players within the administration. They're fully aware you know, what we're working on. And uh, just to kind of refresh our listeners, uh, the expansion of the credit that you're talking about would be about 12,500, expanding the credit for American assembled vehicles and those made in union facilities. And this is the same uh, provision that was marked up in Senate finance uh, recently. Yeah, so you know, we've been working closely, Senator Stabenow and I particularly, uh, speaking on a nearly daily basis on the detail of all of this. And I think what we've arrived upon is the basic architecture um, of a revised tax credit, uh, consumer credit. You know, the numbers, you know, could change marginally uh, one way or the other. Um, but to what we, what the Senate marked up in, the, in committee architecturally is right where Senator Stabenow and I and many of the stakeholders believe we need to land. And the only reason I'm being a little cautious on this is that you know, the numbers may move slightly one way or another. There may be, uh, um, you know, some interest in moving some of these benefits around a bit. Uh, there may be some interest in even moving the MSRP around a bit. But basically where we stand right now, I think, is the architecture of a new consumer credit that makes a lot of sense and is, you know, based on the right goal. And how we land in terms of the specific numbers, we're still working through some of that. And what we don't want to do is prejudice ourselves to the point where we're not open to some uh, some suggestion that might be valuable. We want to be able to get this through to the president. The Ford F-150, America's best-selling pickup truck, will be available next year in an all-electric version and will be made in Dearborn, Michigan. What do you think this will do for EVs in America? I think it's a real game changer. Uh, you know, I was with the president a couple of weeks ago when he came to Dearborn. I sat in that same vehicle that he drove and looked like he was launched out of a rocket when he punched the accelerator. Uh, it's an amazing vehicle. And, you know, it's priced for middle America. And it, it, it's a, you know, a, a pickup truck is uh, sort of a democratizing product. I mean, it's used in industry, it's used by consumers, it's used in urban and rural. It is, you know, just a very American product. So I think because of the, and, and it's not just Ford, but other producers, General Motors, others will have these vehicles that are very much popular consumer products that will have 
incredible performance, towing capacity, for example, the ability to serve as essentially a generator. Um, I mean, I, I, I often point out, just imagine if in Texas, where you know a pickup truck is pretty much issued to everybody at birth, imagine if during their terrible grid failure, where millions of Texans were without power, they could just go into their garage, reverse the charge on their pickup truck, plug it into their home, and have two weeks of power for their home. I mean, the the benefit of moving in this direction with that sort of a vehicle goes well beyond saving the planet and meeting consumer demand. These are really great products, and I'm excited about how interested the public will be once they fully understand them. Congressman, could you please explain why the stakes are so high? Are the U.S. manufacturers, you know, who are they kind of competing against and what the next five or 10 years look like? Yeah, it's a great question. And it really is the fundamental question. Uh, We are in a global competition. Our principal competition when it comes to not just electric vehicles, but lots of aspects of the global competition uh, is is China. A significantly higher number of electric vehicles are in production in China than in the U.S. And so the real question for us as policymakers, and even broader than that as a nation, is not whether or not electrification is reality. It's happening. And while 2% seems small, it doesn't take long once we start seeing production get to scale for that number to rise sharply. And our concern, of course, is if the United States is not in the business of producing electric vehicles, that doesn't mean the American consumer won't be in the business of buying them. They'll just be buying them from somebody else. And what we have to do is make sure that we retain as much of our market share as possible. And, and this is a subject that you know the communities I represent, there's an historic corollary that we want to avoid. And that is in the early 1970s, when the industry was changing, not as dramatically as the shift that we will see to electrification, but when the industry was changing as a result of relatively high gas prices, uh, this was about the time of the Arab oil embargo, suddenly there was massive demand for fuel-efficient vehicles, and the American producers had not retooled. We had not created an environment where we could fit, we could meet the consumer demand for more fuel-efficient vehicles. We lost significant market share to our foreign competition, and as a result of that, a lot of the people in my district, a lot of the people in my hometown lost their jobs. People were still buying vehicles. They were just buying from somebody else. And what we worry about is that if we fail to see around the corner the way policymakers and the industry failed to see the future back in the early 1970s, we could see that same phenomenon repeated. The difficulty, of course, is once you lose market share, it's hard to get it back. So there seems to be almost no Republican buy-in for an expansion of the credit 
Do you think you can find any common ground with your Republican colleagues so more people are on board? I hope so. I believe it's the case because, you know, privately we've had discussions, you know, even as we were initially working on uh, the extension of the credit a couple of years ago, we had good conversations with some Republican offices. I don't want to put them on the spot right now because we're still trying to work with them. Um, but the problem then was that President Trump had made it crystal clear that he was not on board. And it didn't seem likely that Republican uh, members of Congress would be willing to sign on to an effort that was going to contradict the wishes of the president. If we step back from this, it should have strong Republican support. This is the use of the tax code to create market-based incentives, to claim our own future, and to reshore lots of manufacturing. That's not a partisan issue. Uh, it shouldn't be anyway. So I still hold out hope. You know, I'm, I will say this. It's disappointing the extent to which many Republicans take the position that if Joe Biden's for it, they have to be against it. I mean, that's just not rational. Um, so I, I hope that that's not the case. But, you know, the environment we're in is not, a, not an easy one to find bipartisanship. We're not giving up. So, Congressman, the other part of all this is charging infrastructure and what do you think should the plan be? How quickly can the U.S. ramp up charging in infrastructure so that uh, consumers have the confidence uh, to buy or lease an electric vehicle? Yeah, I mean, this is the other critical piece of it. And it's, you know, we have kind of a chicken and egg problem. What comes first? And I think what we have to do is realize that the charging infrastructure itself will set up some incentives for um, consumers to purchase vehicles. I mean, so much of it has to do with the price differential between internal combustion vehicles and electric vehicles, which will change over time. Part of, part of the purpose of the credit is to bridge that gap. But with higher volume production, uh, those prices will come down to the point that the credit will no longer be required and we'll be able to phase it out. You know, as, as you may know, there's a provision that calls for the phase out once we have 50% of vehicles uh, sold in the country being uh, EVs. But the other part of the sort of consumer incentive is the confidence that, that they'll be able to get a charge for their vehicle. Uh, I mean, right now, the, the, one of the larger barriers to uh, purchasing a vehicle is so-called range anxiety where folks are uh, intrigued by the idea of an electric vehicle, could potentially with the tax credit pencil out how it works for them, but that are reluctant because they don't think they'll have the ability to get the charge where they need it. So this is a major part of an infrastructure initiative. It's not about just updating current infrastructure, but actually creating 21st century infrastructure. So the president's proposal uh, for charging stations is really important and you know the the placement of those the question is that whether they will be public or some combination of public and private i think is a really interesting set of questions but i think because the president has laid out a pretty bold agenda 
uh, it gives us a chance to not only create the consumer incentives that deal with the price differential, but deal with the fundamental consumer concern, and that is charging. So um, thank you, Congressman Kildee, uh, for your time. We'll be following the electric vehicle tax credit and the developments around this issue for the weeks and months to come. Uh, it was great talking to you, so thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. That was Congressman Dan Kildee, a Democrat from Michigan, speaking with Bloomberg Taxes, Kostuv Basu. You can find up-to-the-minute news on the latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. That website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. And if you have any thoughts about what you just heard or about anything else, get in touch with us on Twitter. We use the handle at tax. Today's Talking Tax was produced by myself, David Schultz. Patrick Ambrosio is our editor. Our executive producer is Josh Block. From Washington, I'm David Schultz. Thank you so much for listening. For our next season of Uncommon Law, we're looking at the regulatory future of big tech. The giants need to be broken up. Facebook, Google, all of them. Is big tech impinging on your right to free speech? They've had unchecked power to censor, restrict, edit, shape, hide, alter. Misinformation, disinformation. It's like a big Venn diagram. We do not want to become the arbiters of truth. We're calling this series Unchecked. Just search for Uncommon Law wherever you get your podcasts.